For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Before we start, I want to make a correction to a piece from last week. We have learned Boardwalk distribution owner Brian Hendershot is not a lobbyist principal, and his donations during the blackout period were made as an individual, which is neither illegal nor unethical. So I apologize for the confusion there. Also, earlier this week, we learned of a lawsuit between the National Rifle Association and its longtime advertising agency, Ackerman McQueen. The two entities have worked together for 38 years, with the NRA spending upwards of $40 million to the Oklahoma City ad agency in 2017 alone. Neva, is this trouble in paradise for the two? (laughs) Well, I mean, clearly there's a lot of contention, a lot of things that have uh, kind of gone back and forth in this episode. But when you have a major advertising agency in Oklahoma, it's the oldest uh, ad agency in our our state, and they have one of their largest, if not the largest client, uh, uh, now calling into question, wanting to know more information about the contract. Uh, uh, some of the some of the dispute is clearly contractual. Some of it is just uh, maybe personality, given some family relationships and and mm-hmm. other things that have come out kind of in this storyline. But the long and the short is uh, it certainly casts a, a more questions than answers at this point. And I think that we'll see this uh, story kind of linger on as it becomes more of a national story as well. All right. I mean, get the popcorn. This story has everything, <laughs> and and you know, hopefully this will make its way through the trial. I doubt there's going to be a settlement here. There's folks are pretty entrenched on both sides. And what we were seeing is both one of the, I think one of the more interesting things we're beginning to see, there's already a New Yorker piece about this that, that I encourage folks to go read, but we're getting a glimpse into the inner workings of the NRA and the way that they deal with their, their vendors, uh, like Ackerman McQueen, $40 million. You know, some of the, the TV spots that they run, they've got, you know, NRA has their own TV channel. You know, they're paying people out of Ackerman McQueen million dollar salaries to be celebrities on these NRA TV shows. You know, they're, they're, the kind of content that they're creating is just really gross and despicable, right? And so the discovery process here, now that we have litigation, you know, a lot of times, you know, these, these nonprofits and their, their relationships with, with vendors are, are behind closed doors. The discovery process here could reveal a lot about both of them. You know, it, there is some poetic justice now that the, there's this mutually parasitic relationship is between the NRA and Ackerman McQueen has now come into this circular firing squad. And I think that there's a decent chance that both of them could come out of this gravely wounded. I mean, I'm guessing they wouldn't want, they, they don't want this really. Do you think they want to go to trial? Because once they do, then a lot of things get public. Well, who knows on the, on the trial side, like Ryan says, um, I think there are a lot of things that will happen between now and then. I think when you look at the NRA, such a large national organization, some, some, uh, some would say that this um, among the organizations that many Oklahomans belong to, certainly many NRA uh, card-carrying members for years. So they will look at it from the vantage point of uh, the organization and what they see it doing in terms of protecting Second Amendment rights and the issues that they care about. So the kind of the the skirmishing and the fighting and all that's going on from the legal standpoint really doesn't uh, probably um have that much influence one way or the other, it does influence the bigger picture in terms of a black eye to any ad agency when you have a major client uh, who comes forward, wants to uh, pursue litigation, makes a lot of allegations, uh, it becomes very contentious and and certainly very public. Uh, It has a spillover effect, as you say. I mean, in this instance, you would have to say there are no winners, uh, at least at this point, and and everyone is kind of on a losing track in terms of uh, perception and potentially reality. 
reality. And most people in Oklahoma know about the NRA and they know about Ackerman McQueen. They might not know that these two have worked together for, you know, in for as long as they have. this very symbiotic, mutually yeah. parasitic relationship, millions of dollars, $40 million contracts. And one of the things that were, you know, the NRA, you know what they really needed? They needed Hillary Clinton to win. They needed Hillary Clinton to win the presidency because Barack Obama was the best thing for donors uh, to the NRA. You know, they, they got to scare everybody that Barack Obama was going to come and take their guns, even though he wasn't. They got to scare everybody that Hillary Clinton was going to come and take their guns, even though she wasn't. And when she lost and Donald Trump became president, I think that, you know, we began to see their fear mongering began to not have a lot of traction. They're, they're losing money hand over fist right now. And that may be uh, behind a lot of this right now. They're trying to figure out how do we save money? And wait a second, we're just hemorrhaging money to this ad agency in Oklahoma, and they're not really telling us everything that they're doing for us. By the same token, uh, while the kind of the right-leaning NRA uh, may be in this position, as you say, I mean, certainly uh, hemorrhaging by their own admission in terms of uh, uh, of kind of their bottom line on the financial uh, picture. On the on the other side of the spectrum, you have ad agencies making hundreds of millions of dollars with left-leaning groups uh, who are taking advantage of the political climate that we have today and being able to uh, and, and being able to benefit from that so ad agencies are hired to do one thing they're to market they're to they're to uh, uh, present an image and to uh, uh, push what they need to for their clients so in terms of Oklahoma and the relationship of Ackerman McQueen with the NRA it is a 38-year relationship it is something that has uh, withstood the test of decades which oftentimes is not the case in a very cutthroat advertising world uh, that anyone that's been in that business will uh, talk about and has been written about for you know eons so I think uh, I think in this instance it'll be very interesting to see it do the contract issues really uh, bear out to, to the point that they want to go to court and lit and fully litigate this uh, time will tell but there's a lot of money on the table so anything's possible a couple of stories dropped over the past week on Oklahoma's opioid trial starting next month. First off, the judge in the case says he alone will hear the case rather than it going before a jury. And Comanche County says it wants to be a part of the trial after taking issue with Attorney General Mike Hunter's handling of the Purdue Pharma settlement. Ryan, let's start with a non-jury hearing. How does this affect a trial? So this, I mean, we're going to we're gonna hear arguments directly to a judge, Judge Bachman down in Cleveland County. He's going to be one to making decisions on, judges always make decisions on decisions on questions of law, but here the judge is going to be making decisions on questions of fact. And yeah, I hope that Judge Bachman has got a little bit of rest because the amount of evidence and the, the technical nature of the evidence that he's going to be hearing is going to be overwhelming. It's, it's going to be difficult. A jury can totally do it. I mean, you know, jurors have the ability to do that, and lawyers in the judicial system are set up in a way to help jurors through technical cases like this. But here it's all going to be on the judge's lap. And Judge Bachman is a, is a great jurist, and I think that he's, he's very studied, and he's going to be up to this task. So the, the question was whether or not there was a right to a jury trial. And because they had dropped every other uh, civil charge against uh, the remaining uh, phar- pharmaceutical defendants here except for a public nuisance charge— under that, you're not looking at prospective money damages or punitive damages. You're really looking at the dam- at the money damages you need to abate the problem. So in this case, what it would take to begin to remedy the opioid epidemic in the state of Oklahoma. Judge Bachman felt that that was the case and that there was no right to a jury trial. So the request for a judge 
trial was granted. Neva. Well, and I think it's interesting on this. You had attorneys for uh, for the pharmaceutical companies split on whether or not yeah. to, to go to trial or whether or not the uh, the uh, having the judge hear this would be the, the best course. Uh, I think the other interesting element to this is that when they were talking about uh, jury versus uh, non-jury trial, I mean, it is clear what we're talking about in these instances now are the potential for billions of dollars to be in the mix in terms of, of, of the final uh the the final potential settlement so it's a lot of money and i think it, you're right i think uh, uh certainly that uh, justice balkman is up up for uh judge balkman is up for uh the task but it will be a very uh interesting trial to watch as it as it rolls out and, and one with tremendous national implications because of all of the other lawsuits across the nation that are are taking a look at this in terms of the counties weighing in i think this is about counties saying look uh, in this first uh, settlement that uh, they saw 12.5 million as mm-hmm, their figure mm-hmm. versus all of these much larger uh, figures that 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 were uh, in the settlement and they're looking for where can they get you know where can they get a, a bigger sli- a slice of the pie and i think uh, it will be interesting to see long term as some of these counties uh, get more engaged in this i mean it's a it's a litigation process that's going to cost them some significant dollars and uh, ultimately they're going to be accountable back to the to the uh, folks back home that elected them whether or not this was a good road to go down and pursue and i think a lot of people also have said this 270 million dollar settlement to a uh, to purdue pharma which is a bill i mean billions and billions and billions of dollar company i mean they have uh, billions of dollars and we're getting 207 million dollars i think people are upset about how much i think that they may be upset but you know reggie Witten, one of the private counsel that the state of oklahoma have retained to prosecute this case against the pharmaceutical companies on behalf of the people of oklahoma i think he made a, a very good point you know this nobody's happy about the settlement i mean this this is a, this is a heartless company that has wreaked you know enormous amount of damage and pain and suffering and misery not just in oklahoma but around the nation but the the litigators in that case were faced with an impossible choice. They could have gone to trial against Purdue. They could have you know, made a, a real statement. They could have got a huge verdict against them and they could have collected nothing. And instead, as, as Reggie Witten pointed out, we've got this thing now that's going to come out of this, out of this exceptional situation where it was either bankruptcy and a, and, and a political statement or a settlement that allows us to invest in the health care of the people in Oklahoma and set a standard that's going to allow us to not only take care of our folks here, but to export that care around the nation to deal with this opioid epidemic. That was a difficult situation. We're not dealing with that with these other defendants. And so the, the, the counties and the municipalities that may want to you know jump onto this, I think their argument that that case could happen again just is going to be really difficult to be. That's it's difficult to persuade a judge uh, that that's the case now because these other defendants aren't facing bankruptcy. A bill requiring abortion providers to tell women a drug-induced abortion is reversible is heading to the governor. Supporters say it will save lives, but opponents, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, say there is no scientific proof of a reversal. With one doctor calling it tantamount to quackery. Neva, what I don't understand is how will this reduce abortions? 
Well, I think I think the issue here is this bill, which has already been passed in seven other states. I mean, has when has uh, clearly among those that are the pro-life movement folks in Oklahoma have uh, produced uh, uh, documentation and evidence that to uh, to make the case that over 500 babies have been saved by this abortion pill reversal protocol, and that they believe that this is a an important step for the legislature to take, and hopefully, in their view, the governor to sign since it's now on his desk, uh, to uh, to give an antidote uh, so that uh, the abortion, once it has uh, been started, there is an opportunity to, you know, to stop it. So I think when we look at these kinds of bills going through the Oklahoma legislature in a very pro-life state with a very pro-life legislature, I mean, we can see it in the votes. I mean, in, in the Senate, it was a party-line vote, 39 to 8, uh, Republican-Democrat. In the uh, uh, in the House, we had it 74-24. You had one, one Democrat that voted for it, one, one Republican up, yeah. that voted against it, can't, kind of canceling each other out on, on that. But but the, the party line vote, I think, does demonstrate that this is clearly another bill that is a pro-life bill that has uh, successfully moved through the legisla- legislature. And I think the governor has already said that you put a pro-life bill on my desk, I'm going to sign it. And I think that's what uh, the expectation is in this regard. Ryan, does this open up the state to a legal challenge? Absolutely, it does. And, and we've seen legal challenges against this in other, in other states because it creates an undue burden on a woman's right to be able to access a legal, constitutionally protected and safe abortion. Medical abortions and the, the types of abortions that this are, are that these are meant to address, you know, where a woman is given a drug to basically induce you know, a miscarriage um, and and to abort the uh, abort the fetus, that is the safest type of abortion that a woman can get. It's not reversible. Uh, the the science just isn't there. What we're hearing, and you know, you heard one uh, obstetrician say that you know this is uh, tantamount to quackery, and that's exactly what it is. We're we're asking physicians. You know, the the doctor patient relationship uh, should be one of the most sacred and uh, uh, relationships with a ton of integrity between the two parties there. And we're asking doctors to violate that by lying to their patients. They already have to do that now. And this is part of the. Uh, the anti-abortion movement has been to, number one, try to interfere with the trust relationship between physicians and their patients, but then also to create this unfunded mandate, not from the government. It's not asking the government to spend any money here, but it's asking providers to, to post materials, to post articles, to take time out of their schedules to begin to have these conversations. And most of these conversations begin with, with a provider saying, I have to tell you this by law, uh, but, this is, but it's against my medical advice, and we shouldn't allow doctors... Or we shouldn't allow physicians to go into that room. I remember when my wife was pregnant and we were in the room with her OBGYN and we, her OBGYN recommended something to her in terms of, of testing for, for our son, Oliver, who is later born. Uh, and she said, I would do this, but the legislature's tied my hands here, so we have to do it at this time. And I'm thinking, here's this small room with my wife, myself, and her doctor in the room. And now all of a sudden, hundred my I was in le, uh, just out of the legislature, and I'm thinking 101 of the folks that I used to serve with are now in this room with us telling this doctor what to do with regard to my wife. That's just absolutely uh, against everything that all Oklahomans, pro-life, pro-choice, should be about. I think when we, uh, one point I would like to make though, when we look at these statistics in Oklahoma, 53% of all abortions are now medical or chemical 
uh, abortions, which involve this two two step drug process. So it's a very different time than when it when the majority of abortions were surgical abortions. So I think this is what has kind of pushed this front and center, not only in Oklahoma but across the country. This debate is going on in Oklahoma. Among a handful of states, have been at the forefront of, pa- of passing it through the legislature. Now waiting for it to become law. But shouldn't that be the concern that if someone walks in and says, "Oh, well, this medical uh, the 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 pharmaceutical abortion is reversible," well, then I should just go ahead and just do the the surgical one. Just that way, I don't have to worry about it. And that's actually much more dangerous. I, I think that's. I think that that is not the debate that was at the at the core. No, of I know that. But, I, well, I, but I, I would say I wouldn't attach danger to either one of those. You know, frankly, carrying a child to term is more dangerous than either one of those procedures. You know, the, the risk to a woman is is much higher to carry a pregnancy to term and deliver than it is to have an abortion, medical or otherwise. And so, you know, what what we're. Just, I mean, I just this is this is again just another effort for lawmakers to try to you know. Uh, um, uh, Make sure that their their pro life bona fides are intact, and because we saw earlier this session a real effort by abolitionists to push forward a bill that would have created a personhood uh, statute in Oklahoma that would have made abortion murder, and you know, everybody knew that that was unconstitutional. So, I, I was really proud of Republican leadership in the House and the Senate that said we're just not going to hear this stuff, we're not going to hear this nonsense. But then there's this backlash of a very small group, but very loud group of individuals, and so now everybody feels this need to to go out and kind of thump their chest and say, look at me. I really am pro-life. I just passed this bill. Please don't primary me in, in a year or so. Senate Republicans put the brakes on a cost of living adjustment for retirees. The bill to give a 4% COLA for the former state workers who haven't seen an increase in 11 years got changed to an actuarial study for a 2% COLA, which won't be completed until December. Ryan, some former Oklahoma employees are pretty upset by this. Well, they should be. I mean, when we look, we've talked about this earlier on, on our program, whenever you know, the the negotiations for a cost of living increase and we're talking about you know state employees that haven't realized this for over a decade now and you know the negotiations started out with the uh, Oklahoma uh, Public Employee Association putting out a six percent it got negotiated down to four and now we're talking about two and then the two is now speculative and to be determined on the basis of the actuarial study that'll happen when the legislature is not even in session that is problematic and because when we look at I know that it's, it is right for lawmakers to want to look at these retirement systems and make sure that they are sound. In years past, they have not been. We have made tremendous gains in showing up the stability of those. And if you look at the measures uh, that actuarial companies that, that monitor and rate these funds put on you know, the amount that has to be funded, our funds, it's, you know, there's, if you don't know a lot about this, you may think, well, your fund needs to be 100%. Well, that's just not the case. Uh, you know, 65, 70% funded is sound and healthy. And these funds are there right now. They have- Some of them are above 100%. They're, they're above, we've got some that are at 105%. They have the ability to make these cost of living increases. Even if they don't feel like they could have made the six, they could have done two, three, or four now, and then done the actual, based and a further increase on the actuarial study, but to ask them to wait for 100% of any cost of living increase beyond this legislative session is just untenable for a lot of retired state employees that are living paycheck to paycheck. Neither. Well, I think you had the Tulsa Fraternal Fraternal Order of Police uh, chairman uh, make a statement that I thought kind of summed it up well. He said it, it's disappointing, but it is better than a solid no. And I think that's and I think that's where it's at. While everyone uh, that uh, that were advocating and lobbying for this would like to have seen it happen this session, it's not going to. But it's not dead. I mean, they will have an interim study during the uh, uh, after uh, after the legislative uh, session is over into the probably summer and fall. Uh, they will look at these actual 
actuarial, actuarial numbers. And then I think ultimately what we will see is maybe the negotiations start again. Who knows? Maybe it's not 2%. Maybe they move back to the to the 3 or 4%. I think it becomes a, a continued work in progress. I don't think any lawmaker uh, at the Capitol says that the COLA is not needed, that it's not justified. I think the, the uh, feeling was rather than just go quick, it was much wiser to be much more judicious and study this and make sure that what they did moving forward, even though it's been 11 years, that it that it's done right. So long and the short is uh, it, it won't be until uh, potentially uh, July of next year that uh, that this could uh, become a reality. But the fact of the matter is we still have it in play and it's not just something where they've said it's, it's done, over, we can't do this, and it's indefinite when we'll look at it again. So um, I think I think it's a uh, I think it will be interesting to see as these uh, lawmakers come back in and really begin to study it. Uh, and clearly, these folks that are advocating for it, they have the numbers, they have their information, they're armed with very good, uh, uh, very good messaging on their side in terms of lobbying. So it is uh, something that's not going to go away, and and we'll see what happens in the next session. Elected officials kept busy in fundraising in the first three months of the year. Senator Jim Inhofe, uh, who pulled in $310,000, while that's not surprising, the 84-year-old senator hasn't even announced whether he's running for re-election in 2020. So, Neva, do you think the longest-serving elected (laughs) official in Oklahoma history will go for a fifth full term? I think there's every expectation that Senator Inhofe will, in fact, run again. Um, And I think think that uh, there's no great urgency to uh, make this announcement with the expectation being there. Here's someone who is chairman of one of the most powerful Senate committees, uh, certainly the Oklahoman that is the uh, uh, has the longest record now serving, uh, uh, serving, and someone who clearly is still on top on the top of his game in terms of being a political force in Oklahoma. Uh, as we look at all of his uh, uh, all of his elections and how formidable he is, here's here's a guy with a million dollars in the bank can raise any amount uh, potentially that he needs to raise for a race. So the I think the qu- question is, will there be uh, will there be a formidable opponent? on the Democrat side emerge. At this point, there's not been even much speculation of names, which is interesting. When you t- when you talk about a U.S. Senate seat, uh, there's always a mm-hmm. lot of early speculation. Uh, and I think, you know, any time that uh, the senators had primary challenges, he's had some in the past, he's dispatched them with, uh, I think, the last time, 88% of the vote in a, in a primary. So that's, that is uh, not anything that is really on the political radar for anyone. But I think the more fascinating question will be, with the upcoming election, will will there be any effort on the part of the Democrats when they have to double down and really uh, focus on trying to hold the one Democrat seat they have in Congress in Oklahoma? Uh, Ryan, do you think there's any Democrat out there that can move the mountain? You know, I think that it, it would be difficult. A statewide race for a Democrat right now would be difficult. And and Jim Inhofe would walk in. You know, of this money that he's raised, it would be interesting, David, to know how many donors he actually picked up the phone and called and how much of it just showed <laughs> oh, up in the mailbox. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <laughs> at that point. I, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, so, you know, and I think we're going to talk in a minute about yeah. uh, uh, Congresswoman uh, Kendra Horn and her phenomenal. I mean, she outraised Jim Inhofe. You know, her phenomenal 
juggernaut fundraising effort that she's got going on, she's hustling for that. You know, if, if anybody thinks that they're going to just take back the fifth uh, for the Republicans, the fifth district for the Republicans in 2020 without a fight, man, they are kidding well, themselves. And that's what Neva had mentioned is because the, the, the Democrats do have one seat finally. They're going to take, <laughs> they're going to hold the fifth. Kendra um, Horn's going to hold the fifth. And I think the first $378,000. And that was more than any other congressional yeah. delegate, any more than uh, Lucas or, or Ryan or even Inhofe himself, yep. which is pretty amazing for any Democrat to do. I mean, and, and she raised uh, three quarters of it from in-state in Oklahoma. She had average contributions, I think, of $10. She had 60% of her donors were, were women. She, her, her contribution base, her contributor base, looks a lot like her electoral base. And, you know, that for any sort of a politician is a wonderful measure of where you stand. I mean, she's raising money from the people, not just from people that want her to win, but from people that are going to vote for her. And if you're giving her money and you're going to vote for her, you're going to make sure that other people vote for her. That's a powerful indicator of where she stands right now in that district. Now, I think that when we talk about Democrats maybe taking on Jim Inhofe, I think the more interesting question is, you know, who wins in a primary between G.T. Bynum and David Holt uh, whenever Jim Inhofe decides not to run for re-election? That's, <laughs> that's the more interesting question right now. Democrats, though, I do that's think... That's whoever opens up. It's going to be an whoever amazing opened, You know, the, the first congressional district could be the next fifth. And so we saw some pretty weak fundraising numbers there from the incumbent uh, compared to Congresswoman Horn. And I think that, you know, of, of course, you know, you know, there they're not, and your Republicans are in danger of losing that congressional seat, or at least they don't feel like they are. And uh, Congresswoman Horn is one of the top 50 picks uh, for Republicans to come after in 2020. But the demographics are changing in metropolitan areas right now. So it may be a few cycles before we see Democrats really competitive at the statewide level. I'm not going to you know, prove me wrong. You know, somebody <laughs> prove me wrong. But uh, I think in those congressional districts, we're going to start to see a lot of a lot of Democratic competition. And the Republicans have got to be a little bit concerned because every time they attack her, it seems like her fundraising goes up. So, I mean, how much do you, do you want to, you don't want to pull back on the attacks, but you also realize that every time you do, you're giving her money. Well, and as Ryan said, I mean, the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, has targeted uh, this seat, uh, the fifth district as one of the 55 that are on their, you know, the top of their list. And, and clearly I think for, uh, for Congresswoman Horn, I mean, this is a situation where your first reelect is always your most dangerous and always Mm. your most difficult. And the the president's going to be on the ballot. And the president's going to be on the ballot. And even even though recent poll numbers say that I think in the 5th District uh, his favorable is 53%, it's still over 50%. Uh, it's still a long way till uh, uh, till next year and the election and the election. And so I think we have a situation where Horn is doing the right thing in terms of uh, staying in the district, staying connected, and certainly focusing on fundraising. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, you have to applaud any uh, first-term congresswoman or man who uh, has received uh, 2000 uh, individual contributions in the first quarter and uh, 62% of those being female is significant and I think the fact that uh, uh, the fact that many of those over half I think you said are first time first time donors I mean that shows that uh, she's doing what by her own description is continuing to grow what she says is the largest grassroots uh, uh, organization uh, in Oklahoma and I think it is something that Republicans certainly are paying a lot of attention to and Republicans are also remember 
member have made this their number one priority in 2020 is to take back this congressional seat. So I think there will be a great deal of focus. Uh, there are a lot of names out there, a lot of speculation uh, uh, as to who will emerge as kind of the front runner, the the, the uh, candidates that uh, have kind of the right uh, kind of the right mix to be the most competitive in this particular race. But I think we can expect that this will be a highly spirited race, a heavily funded race on both mm-hmm. sides, and ultimately it may come down to uh, as narrow a race and win for whoever uh, in uh, in November of next year, as we saw when she captured the seat away from Steve Russell uh, in the last election. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.